I think farming globally is getting away with enormous environmental damage that they should be held accountable for. From Vatex International, this is Blunt Dissection. I'm Dave Nicol. On today's show, I'm joined by Dr. Peter Domit. Pete graduated from the Undistaport School of Veterinary Medicine in South Africa. A born adventurer with a lust for life, he now lives in Scotland managing an organic farm, literally ploughing a new furrow for ethical food production and a move away from unsustainable monoculture farm practice, something he firmly believes is detrimental to animal welfare, the planet, and even the survival of the human race. Peter's convictions derive in no small way from a life lived to the full. Highlights include an entirely harrowing and tragic yachting trip in the wild southern ocean, the rehabilitation and transformation of Waterford Farm, a beautiful non mechanical farm. Located high in the Drakensberg Mountains, his efforts were initially written off as impossible, yet he developed, innovated and eventually proved his values-led medal of farming, one where animals, people and ecosystems work in harmony. Each remarkable step of these chapters of his life proceeding with a captivating mix of blood, sweat, laughter and tears. His is a story of one man's journey into the unknown, which I'll warn you now, will frequently leave your jaw on the floor. Now, before we jump into the episode, a quick word from today's show sponsor, which is the Leaders Programme for Practice Managers. If you're responsible for the management of a vet practice and people, more accurately staff dramas are your biggest challenge, then Leaders was designed for you. The programme is the only complete leadership system developed specifically for veterinary practice that will help you transform your practice from a hot mess to a hot rod. On the course, you'll learn how to create a compelling vision, choose the right strategy, hire effectively and lead your team so you can create positive culture that brings results. This is a unique deep dive into the world of high performance where I will be your personal mentor throughout. It's a four-module VHMA accredited training course supported by weekly live coaching sessions and toolkits to ensure you bring your plans to life. Membership's available for a small monthly fee where you can join and learn with other practice managers who've changed their practices for the better. To learn more and apply, head to vetexinternational.com forward slash leaders. Now back to the show. Unlike many of my guests, Pete is not well known. He does not have a resume crammed full of diplomas. He's not yet published any books, and as far as I know, has not won any glittering prizes. But his life experience inventory column is stacked in a way that few can rival. And that, combined with his willingness to take on the issues many others avoid, make him one of my favourite guests ever. So sit back and strap in. Seriously, strap in and enjoy this conversation with the remarkable Dr. Peter Domit. Welcome to another episode of Blunt Dissection. This is an episode I've been very excited to do and I have to say one of the best laughs in veterinary medicine. I don't think a laugh on its own gets you on the show, but it doesn't hurt at all. Welcome Dr. Peter Domit to Blunt Dissection. Thank you, Dave. Lovely to be with you and chatting again. So that you might pick up is a South African accent and I think, Peter, you're the first South African on the show. So one of the reasons I was keen to bring you on is your wealth, I think that's the right word, wealth of experience in the department of life. Now, I wonder, I would lay my life that listening right now, you may never have heard of Peter Domit before. And after this show, you will not forget this name. Peter has had some of the, if you laid out a career end to end, it's one of the most incredible journeys that I have heard of in veterinary medicine in terms of just 
taking life on and living it to the full and just experiencing the highs and the lows, literally, in many instances, of what life has to offer. And Peter, so it's the hardest thing about this podcast is actually knowing where the heck to start. But what I've learned over the many episodes that I've now done of this show is that the beginning is usually a good point. So let's kick off with that and perhaps tell us how on earth did Dr. Peter Domit end up in veterinary medicine in the first place? Quite an interesting little story. I was uh, a little country boy growing up on the edge of a town, little rural town in South Africa, a beautiful country where I spent most of my life. And I was learning for matric, my final school exams, and I wasn't much of a schoolboy. School didn't really like me, and I didn't like school. I just didn't want to be there. So instead of learning for exams, I was I found a, a James Harriet book, and I was reading the James Harriet book. All of my life, I'd already wanted just to be a farmer, but it was not easy to go farming when you don't have a farming background. And reading the James Harriet book, I thought, this is a pretty cool alternative life. And literally from reading that book, I decided I'm going to be a country vet if I can be. So you didn't take a direct path into this. It was safe to say that you've dipped in and dipped out of it. So, you know, you're roundabout way. So you end up going to vet school at OP, which is uh, the only vet school uh, just outside of Johannesburg in South Africa. How was the experience getting into vet school? You, you sound like you might be one of those people a wee bit like me that wasn't at the top of the class and enjoyed the life part of class a little bit. Am I calling that right? Quite correct. I really didn't want to, <laughs> I really didn't want to be at school. There were so many more exciting things to do. I heard stories of my grandfather who had ridden the whole of Southern Africa on horseback by the time he was 18, and there I was sitting in school having a pretty boring time. I'd already started sailing in my life, and I loved sailing, and I loved being outdoors. And being in school was, was quite painful. I found it very boring. I felt that school could be what we were doing in school could be accomplished in about probably an hour a day. So why are we sitting there all day long? I was always in trouble. I don't think uh, terms like ADHD and that weren't around in those days, but I probably qualified for a few of those. And it just convinced me that I was a pretty much a hopeless case. And would never get into any form of tertiary education. Uh, nonetheless, I, I decided I wanted to be a vet as a good way to go to, as a really great career and really interested in doing it as a career. But possibly it would also help me go farming one day. What was that about the land? Like, how did the land capture your, I mean, it captured your soul, really? Because I think that's, from the conversations we've had, that's, I imagine you are one of these people that is not, you couldn't be happier unless you've got your your fingers actually in the soil, just growing into it in some way yourself. Like there's a bit of you that's connected to the lands, Peter. Where does that come from? When I was a little kid, I had a farm set and I had animals in my farm set. And from when I was a kid, all I ever wanted to be was a farmer. I don't know where it came from. It just was was in my soul, I guess, that I, I wanted to be a farmer. All right. So now you mentioned, and we've got, I think, quite a lot of ground to cover in this episode for today. So many people find vet school quite challenging to get through. And certainly, you know, you even hear of terms of people being so stressed at vet school that they're kind of, you know, burning out of vet school. 
you had an experience whilst at vet school, if I'm not mistaken, which is, I think it sounds like it should be a movie and a genuinely terrifying experience. You know, it's not just one near-death experience. It's like enough for several lifetimes put together for us and indeed an entirely tragic experience way beyond near-death for people in that moment. Can you tell us more about, firstly, how you came to sailing and tell us, I mean, Cloud Nine, the boat Cloud Nine is, there's a story there that is just incredible. And I think it would be brilliant to hear it told in your own voice, just kind of what happened. And this is, this is, you know, one of those, I mean, it's way past formative. It's not, it's a life experience, a life changing experience, and also just a harrowing experience that, that you describe Tell us about Cloud Nine. Tell us about your love of sailing, Cloud Nine, and just the story of that episode. Well, so when I was a kid at school, not wanting to be at school, all I actually wanted to do in those days was to go sailing. So sailing had actually become my focus in life. But sailing, I'm talking about sailing dinghies, dinghy racing every weekend. There was a, a nice, every spare moment we had, myself and my uh, friends who became almost brothers, we were sailing. We were sailing any kind of dinghy we possibly could. Any opportunity to go to regatta, we would be off sailing, and that was really what we lived for. Then school came to an end. I still, at varsity, carried on sailing dinghies, and at the end of my second year, I got a call from actually my brother-in-law to say that, would I like to go on a on a yacht delivery from Durban to Cape Town. And I was absolutely thrilled. I was out of, out of my out of my tree looking forward to doing such a thing. I'd never I'd sailed one or two little keel boats just for offshore round the boy racing. I'd never spent a night on a boat and uh, to go on a on a proper ocean racer all the way down to Cape Town was just a dream holiday. I could think of nothing nicer to do. And the boat was Cloud Nine, which had come second in the Cape Terrier race earlier in that particular year, and it needed to be delivered from Durban to Cape Town for a regatta. I think it was the Rothmans regatta uh, in those days. And um, the three of the regular crew on it were going to be sailing it, and they needed an extra extra couple of hands just to make life easy. And I just what a wonderful holiday! So I was all. So happy for this. It was quite hard to finish exams that year because I, I got the call halfway through exam time. But uh, got through exams and headed off to Durban for my first ever boat trip. And it was just so exciting. And I hadn't met the skipper of the boat. Uh, the skipper of the boat was a guy, Dave Vensel, who was a wonderful character in himself. He was a, a Rhodesian Olympic pentathlete. A pentathlete. <laughs> He sailed regularly on the boat. He wasn't, but was going to be, and was our skipper for the trip down to Cape Town. So there were five of us who set off, and we left Durban on a really beautiful sunny day, and it was just heaven. It was just gorgeous. We sailed out of Durban Harbour, headed south with a very gentle breeze, and it was just gorgeous. So one probably needs to know a little bit about the coast of South Africa, the east coast of South Africa, because there's a very strong current that flows south. They call the Gullis Current. 
and quite often you get winds that strong winds that come from the southwest which blow against the current often those strong southwesterly winds are preceded by two or three days of gently increasing northeasterly winds and that's what we were in we were in this, this northeasterly wind that increased over a couple of days creating the most beautiful sailing conditions you can imagine so we were cruising along with spinnakers and dolphins and all sorts of exciting things unfortunately one of the guys got really really seasick to the point that he had actually become quite ill and was going to get dehydrated so we decided that he should be dropped off in east london harbor so we cruised into east london harbor and that morning at about three o'clock in the morning i saw one of the most beautiful things i've ever seen which was there was a lot of phosphorescence in the water and i was uh, helming the boat by myself and the next minute i just saw these absolutely beautiful they were dolphins but you couldn't see the dolphins you just saw the phosphorescence and it was just the most wonderful wonderful sight you know i just think that sailing in a little boat out on the ocean is, is a really special experience and anyone who wants to do it should try and do it because it just just is wonderful anyway so we 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 went into east london dropped off ellen who was not very well dave the skipper rushed up to the um harbor master to get a weather report and just uh, book in and do the rigmarole that you're supposed to do we had radios two-way radios in those days but there was no cell phones or comms were very very limited and very poor the harbor master said yeah there's a 20 to 25 knot southwester coming just a normal front nothing to be concerned about so we set off again on our way to cape town in the relatively early hours of the morning still and headed off still beautiful sunny day and i was sitting on we were actually all on deck just absolutely enjoying this cruise and dave said to me wow there's a line school i wonder what's what's coming and i looked up and it, it was really it was amazing it looked like somebody had drawn had taken a ruler and drawn a black line across the sky so we very contrary to what we had heard on the weather report because this looked pretty mean and we watched this this line of clouds coming closer and closer and as it hit us the anemometer the wind speed indicator went went it went up to 60 knots and the needle went straight off the top of the 60 knots and most often those sort of cold fronts and those winds only last for 10 to 12 hours 24 hours very seldom longer than that but we still weren't particularly bothered anyway the three of us put on our because there are four of us on the boat now dave was helming the, the other three of us we put on our life jackets and safety harnesses which for those who don't sail is like a harness that you clip onto something to stop you if you fall overboard so you're still attached by a line we put these on and we had changed down to just a storm storm jib and we were chucking along kind of looking to ride ride this thing out it wasn't looking too bad but it just got stronger and stronger and stronger as the hours went by the waves were getting bigger and bigger so with the wind against the current you get quite steep waves there at and about 10 10 to 20 kilometers off the coast of 
eastern southern Africa there is a, the, the seabed shelves very steeply. It's often referred to as a 40-fathom shelf, but it shelves from hundreds of meters deep down to 40 meters. And when the waves are really big, the gravitational pull there can, can actually cause big waves to break. So we suddenly were in a scenario where we had really large waves that were breaking, just like the back line along any coast. But it still was, you know, it was a hang of a good boat and, you know, nothing we shouldn't, we shouldn't be able to ride out on. So we checked on for a couple of hours, but conditions, the wind seemed to be getting stronger and the waves were getting bigger and more and more white water. But Dave was doing a fantastic job riding over the big waves. And then all of a sudden I heard him shout, here comes a big one. And I was sitting on the weather deck with my arms hooked around some railings. And I looked up as I had been doing all along every time a big wave came along. And I couldn't see it. And, you know, he saw me looking and he said, behind you. And I just heard this roaring white water behind me. And the next minute I could just, I felt the whole boat just picked up and started slithering sideways down the wave. As it kind of gains momentum, after a while, the leeward railing, the lower side of the boat seemed to get stuck in the water and the whole boat just turned over. And with the white white water pushing it, it rolled right over sort of mass pointing down to the seabed. It was, um, it kind of seemed to stay there for a while because I quite clearly remember underwater opening my eyes and thinking, well, what now? You know, do I start swimming or, or what do I do? <laughs> and after a while, the boat pulled itself up and I kind of looked around and the other two crew members were hanging over the leeward rail, still attached by their safety harnesses. And then I looked back and Dave wasn't there. The skipper wasn't there. And sort of looking for him there, I saw him in the water probably 20 meters upwind of where we were. So in, in, the, in that capsize, the storm jib had come loose, so it was just flapping. But when I say flapping, we're now talking extremely strong wind. So it, was, it was shredding itself rather than flapping. Anyway, I kind of helped the two guys, other two guys get back on board, and that was not easy. So I tried to tack the boat, which was not possible because we didn't have enough steerage way or to get upwind. And I thought, well, what's the next step? And so I actually jibed the boat so the two guys were now on the weather side and windward side. And because of the, the angle of the boat, I was able to help them aboard and we climbed on board. But Dave was now up to where in the sea, about 30 or 40 meters away from us, upwind of us. So we're sitting on the boat. We've got no sails intact. One of the guys rushes down to see if if we could start a motor, the motor. However, the batteries have all fallen out, and most of the yachts aren't designed to, to go 180 degrees with the mast pointing down to the sea. It was just chaos, apparently, down there. I didn't actually look below, so I'm not actually sure what, what was on the go down there. But we had a situation where, where, where Dave was in the water and we couldn't get to him, basically. We threw, one of the guys threw over a life boy. Another guy threw, started a flare and a smoke flare. But the, the smoke just disappeared. Disappeared into 
it was just blown. You couldn't even see it. And if there had been anyone to see it, they wouldn't have been able to see it because it was just decimated by the wind. So we were sitting then in a situation where every wave that came picked up the boat and drove us 20 or 30 metres further away from Dave. And as time went by, you know, we just drifted further and further away from him. The waves were, were massive, though, with huge amounts of white water. So every wave that came along, they would disappear for quite a substantial amount of time before he'd pop up again further away from us. So it was a bit of a, it was an awful scenario, and there wasn't much we could actually do about it. So I think, you know, many times over the years, I've looked at it and thought, what could we have done different? How could we have got to Dave? And thankfully for my sanity, I have not come up with a plan that we could have actually got up to him under those circumstances. Obviously, it was a a bit of a state of shock, I guess, as we were sitting there knowing that we'd lost Dave, but we had to carry on. Uh, We'd also lost the hatch covers and every wave that broke over us, water was pouring into the boat. So we knew that the boat was filling up with water slowly, but there wasn't much we could do, so we carried on. So Mark Pellefin was with me, young guy, actually a year younger than I was, just finished my trick that year, and he and I were on deck while Tim was down below decks, and Mark and I were sitting on deck, probably drawing on each other's comfort a little bit and trying to work, keep the boat going, and we were steering steering as best we could, uh, trying to take on as little water as we could, trying to luff up into the waves, because we actually quite, even though the, the storm jib had disappeared completely, it just shredded to, to nothing. Within about you know, 15 minutes, there was absolutely nothing left of it. It was just, so we were just bare poles, but we were traveling quite fast with the wind. And as it turned out later on, the boat traveled an enormous distance under bare poles, which I'll, I'll mention a little bit later. Anyway, we got rolled a couple of times. And then one one time we got rolled again, Mark and I were sitting shoulder to shoulder and he was steering, I was sitting next to him. And when the boat righted itself, we went 180 degrees again, Mark sort of pointing to the seabed. And we, when we came up again, Mark wasn't next to me, but he was being, he was behind the boat connected by his uh, safety harness. The safety harness though had, came off over his shoulders and was around his head and neck. And as I watched, it was kind of strangling him. So as I watched, he sort of grabbed it and pulled it off his head. We had thrown out a long line, the main sheet, which is the longest rope we had behind the boat in in the event that someone did fall over, there would be something to hold on to. So Mark had pulled pulled off the harness and he – uh, we, I saw him grab the line. At the same time, I shouted for Tim, and uh, Tim came up, and, and both of us, Mark grabbed the line, and we both grabbed the line in the boat, ready to pull him in. But the next wave came, and the boat surfed off down the wave, and a little bit like sometimes if you pull a, a, something through the water, it just goes under, and as the boat took off, Mark just disappeared under the water and then came up popped up about 30 metres behind the boat. So we were in very much the same scenario with no power to get to windward. Mark was in the water. In in sight, 
in spitting distance, one could say, but we couldn't get to him. Next wave gets further away and we just drifted again further and further. Well, it wasn't a case of drifting. We were driven further and further away by the wind and the waves. It was quite interesting because it was in those days, the safety harnesses were just a strap over the shoulders and around the waist. And it was quite easily demonstrable afterwards that if you lift your arms above your head, you can just pull them off. So today, all safety harnesses actually have a strap that goes through your between your legs. So it can't actually come off. But it was unknown at that time. So it was now just Tim and I on, on board the boat. The boat was filling up. The wind had got incredibly strong. There was just it, the maelstrom is a, a word that comes to mind. And there was just the sea for above the sea was just a mass of spray, um, wind-driven spray. The amazing thing was the waves were getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And you know, this had gone on for quite a long time now. So it had got dark and uh, it was now nighttime. For quite a long time, it was just me on, on the deck trying to um, steer the boat in a manner that won as little water as possible because I was quite aware that every wave that came over the decks was filling it. So it became a bit crazy later because and it seemed that the best way to not take on water was to actually surf with the waves. So we had these waves that were, were 20 to 30 metres high with this the wind driving, driving the boat at probably somewhere between five to eight knots, even though we had no sails up, and uh, was just and, and I just started surfing on these waves. And for a couple of hours, I got to say, I just thought it was crazy. I just thought, who on this planet has surfed 20, 30 meter waves all through the night? You know, and uh, I got a, a crazy feeling of, you know, this is just, just amazing, you know, <laughs> but. The waves and the wind just seemed to get stronger and stronger. As as it turned out, it was probably the strongest winds ever recorded off that coast, and we were pretty much in the wrong place over the 40-fathom shelf, and these massive breaking waves were were wreaking havoc with us. Anyway, the waves had got so big that in between the waves, when the boat was in the trough between two waves, it was absolutely still. And you'd think, maybe it's over. And then the next minute you'd go come up on the wave and there would just be this howling, howling wind with with just a deep mist of driven spray. Anyway, this carried on for some hours. And then it was the most amazing thing because somewhere in the middle of the night, an albatross started flying in front of the boat. Now, it happened to be almost full moon. So even though there was cloud cover, there was there was some light. And I just remember thinking, well, albatross is a good omen. This bird was flying as if there was no problem whatsoever. It was flying in total control. As what well, I've seen pictures of them skimming one one wing on the on the face of a wave, and it flew with a boat for it seemed like ages. It was probably minutes. I really don't know, but it seemed like a long time. But I just felt from that moment was that oh, we'll be okay, you know this is a good omen and we'll be fine. I have no idea how we're going to get out of this situation, but we'll be fine. Anyway, there were times that the waves seemed to be extraordinarily big and it's really hard to describe it. it was, the waves were many, many times higher than the mast of the boat. So how big they really were, I, I don't really know. Anyway, the, some time later, I called him just 
to have a little parley to see if there's anything we could do to improve the situation. And he came up and he said, but Pete, they're lights. And I couldn't see any lights. And I thought, well, I'm not going to tell him they aren't lights if you believe they're lights. Cut a long story short. He, well, and then grabbed a flare and he set the flare off. And it was interesting because the wind was so strong, the flare was just driven into the back of the next wave down below us. Second flare, same story. And then the third flare actually took off and went up. And Tim said, oh, but there's, the lights are coming towards us. I actually couldn't see anything, any lights. Anyway, it turned out that there was a, a fishing trawler by the name of the Farandol, uh, a French boat. And these guys had seen the flare. And in this absolute unbelievable weather conditions, did what mariners are known to do. They came to see if they could help and salvage whatever situation was we were in. These guys were absolutely amazing. And for quite a long time, we had this 90-foot fishing trawler maneuvering with us, trying to get, trying to, trying to save, get us somehow or other. But a 90-foot fishing trawler surfing, surfing on a wave down towards you is quite a scary thing. So what was kind of happening is, is the fishing trawler would surf past us. And the next moment, we'd surf past them. And then we'd crash into the side of them. And the next minute, you'd be looking down on top of the boat. And the next minute, you just have this wall of, of the side of the boat going up above you on the next wave. But um, we kind of they maneuvered for quite a while like this. And then eventually, I saw the guys, they had a, a, a boat hook, like a long gaff. And I saw one of the guys hook the rope that we had trailing behind us. And I remember thinking, hey, that's cool. The guys have got us. They're going to they'll, they'll pull us in now and we'll be okay. So the next minute, the, this 90-foot fishing trawler surfed past us again, but that rope was tied to the stern of our boat. And as it surfed past us, the rope just pulled tight. It just spun us on a dime, basically. And the next minute, we were surfing backwards towards the stern of this big boat, which looked enormous under the circumstances. And I thought that was with its tickets. It so happened that all of a sudden we sprung loose. And it turned out that the rope had got caught around the leg of, of a kid. He was a, a Portuguese kid, on, on like a cabin boy on board. And one of the sailors had the rope to stop it cutting his leg off. And it, his leg was severely damaged from the rope and probably only saved by this guy cutting his rope. But what he didn't know, he actually saved us too because we were going to be – he pulled into the stern of of the uh, of the fishing boat. Anyway, so we were loose again. After quite some time, they threw some grappling irons across, and they managed to pull us next door to them. So we kind of crashed into the side of them. After but that wasn't so. That sounds like okay, that's fine. So now we're next to them. But the problem is with the waves. The one minute we were way above them, and the next minute they were way above us, even though we were kind of joined to them. But once in a while, the scenario would be that we were above them and close to them. And at one of those moments, uh, Tim and the other guy jumped and landed on their deck. Then the boat separated again. So for a short while, I was on the boat on my own. And I was at least thinking that, well, at least Tim's okay. Somebody can tell him what's happened, you know. <laughs> but anyway, some wave later, the situation was that I was staring down at the deck of the boat and I leapt and landed on the deck of the boat. And as I landed, I just felt these 
powerful arms just grabbed me and carried me in. And he was a, a big sailor guy had lifted me off the deck and carried me in. So anyway, so now we're on the fishing boat. And it took us nearly three days to get to Port Elizabeth Harbour, which normally would have taken the boat probably eight or nine hours because this southwesterly wind just continued at speeds well over 100 miles an hour, probably 160, 180 kilometers an hour, maybe more. But one of the difficulties now, we were on the boat, the boat had no radio comms because all the radio masts had been destroyed by the wind. So we were on the boat for a couple of days, you know, kind of wondering how are we going to, you know, nobody knows what's what's happened, you know. So after a couple of days, we the boat pulled into Port Elizabeth Harbour and we were safe. And I was safe. The other two guys obviously weren't. Thank you for sharing that, Peter. I mean, that's just, it's the emotions that you must go through just even saying that. I know the emotions I'm going through hearing it. And, you know, it's just hard to fathom exactly what you were experiencing there. What struck me as you were saying that was, how calm that you sound, even describing it back. The thing that struck me the most was just the moments that you're able to find of being quite amazed in this whole thing. Like there's there's almost a a naive curiosity about the life. And, you know, you're surfing on the boat doing these 20, 30, 40 meter waves surfing on a yacht. The albatross is there. There's still a wonder. There's still a an amazement at this terrifying thing a literally terrific thing that's happening around you in the the most literal sense of the word where does that come from and what did you take away from this experience i mean you, you must have been changed by it i think it was quite interesting because i didn't think i was changed much by it i didn't think it had had much effect on me but in my years at university i only ever failed one exam and Many of our exams were orals, and the particular exam I failed was the uh, lecturer who was the professor who was giving the oral, started off by asking me about cloud nine, and I just had a mental block, and I couldn't answer any questions. He passed me, even though I clearly failed, (laughs) because he realized that it hadn't been a a good thing to do. But so, yes, I think there, there are underlying things, but I think... The main thing that took away that, that I took away from it is that there's no point in being scared. You know, I don't know why. I often used to think, why, why did I survive and not the other guys? The other guys were much more competent than I was. You know, I was just a young kid who never even sailed before in an overnight race, and the other guys were very accomplished yachtsmen, really good sportsmen, really good guys. You know, it's like, why did I make it? And it's a question I obviously can't answer. But I think it made me fairly fearless towards life in general after that. I mean, you had that fearlessness to even step on the boat, I think, compared to the way some of us uh, make decisions. You just jumped in. I was writing notes as you were talking, and one of the notes was that there's just this lust for life. There was the opportunity. I'm going to go after that. I'm going to experience it. And for many people... I mean, as you were describing it, you're still encouraging us all to get on a boat. Now, I'm sure like plenty of people listening to this right now will never go in a swimming pool again, let alone in a boat. But 
you went through this and you still get on the water. You know, this thing happened. And, and I think this is the some perhaps the recurring thing that comes out of there. There's this acceptance in you. And maybe that's just come over time. And please push back. This is just, I'm making this more poetic than it seems, but there's this acceptance of nature. I don't know if there's that, an affinity is the right word, but you've accepted what happened. It's not shrunk you, it's enlarged you in a way. Yeah, and I'd very much love to go sailing in the Southern Ocean still. So the strange thing about it is that, you know, my life then took me into farming. And in many ways, I felt that farming was very much like doing an ocean, ocean cruise. Mm-hmm. You are working with nature constantly. Nature is far more powerful. You can try and fight it, but you're not going to win. So you just got to work with it and deal with it. And there were many times when we had serious challenges on the farm that were weather-induced. And I think, oh, well, this is just like sailing. You know, we've got to make the most of it. We've got to get through it. And we probably will get through it. So I think that that is probably another big thing I took from it. Okay, well, I mean, thank you for sharing this story, and it's an experience, and it's um, it's yeah, it's a privilege to have heard it, and yeah, but it can't have been an easy thing to tell. So, thank you for doing that, and let's move into I think another area that I want to learn more about you, and and that is your so this farming background, this love of life, this zest for I don't know creation, doing something, working with the land, working with nature, took you toward farming and this idyllic location and i should say for reference you're sitting in my hometown of st andrews and i'm sitting in my new hometown of brighton both in the united kingdom you're not in south africa so there's clearly other chapters to this but but your dream was waterford farm tell us the story of waterford and the particular thing i'm interested about is you know you and i have had brief conversations that have since <laughs> since inspired me to think of you every time I peeling carrots or chopping up vegetables in my kitchen, I think of Pete Domit because I think where did this carrot come from? And when I eat a carrot that I bought for forty four pence for a bag in the in the supermarket in Tesco's, I think that doesn't taste anything like as good as a carrot that I bought for a pound fifty for a bag out of an organic store. And maybe that's my brain just playing with me. But you have got some pretty strong opinions and evidence from your life working with the land to share. Take us to Waterford and tell us the story there. Okay, so I started off, I qualified as a vet. I had a couple of wonderful years in the army, as we all had to do in those days. Made the best of that. Had an absolute, I can't even explain the wonderful time we had in the army. But I still wanted a farm. I didn't have a farm, so I started off as a vet and working in a country practice, a real James Harriet type practice, doing cows and horses and dogs and sheep and pigs and anything that came our way. But more than anything, I was asking the farmers questions and I was learning about farming. And, you know, I used to talk to the farmers. I'd say, you know, you guys must ask me questions too while, while I'm working because I'm learning more than you guys are learning. There was always a drive to learn more about farming. But it was actually in those early years of new work that formulated some very serious concerns I had about farming. Up until then, I was just totally naive. But one of my first cases was a farmer had parked his maize planter outside his dairy, and he had gone in to milk the cows. And 
as the cows were milking, they were walking out and they walked past his maize planter. And in the maize planter was the residues of the snail bait that he had been planting with. And the cows helped themselves to a little bit of this as they walked past. And out of 120 cows, 109 died. And I remember thinking, if the residue of a day's planting can kill a whole dairy herd, what is it doing to the environment and all the animals out there? And I had already grown very much interested. Part of my life driving around the vet was seeing the wildlife. We also saw that part of the world had massive population of guinea fowl. And over the couple of years I was there, they virtually disappeared completely. And I remember thinking, this is crazy. There were various postulates that it might be Newcastle disease and various other things which were all very much disproven. Highly likely it was poisoned. And we were just seeing this massive decline in everything. And then everywhere we went in that part of Southern Africa, the farmers were growing maize and you had this monoculture of maize. And I rapidly came to to look at this and think, wow, it's so green in summer, but in winter it's just a desert. And then I came to realize because the guys were crop spraying and spraying all sorts of stuff. And I I was very friendly with playing rugby with most of my guys I was playing rugby with were maize farmers. So I was learning from them, even after rugby games, learning about what they were spraying and what they were doing and, and how they were going about farming. And I just came to realize this is wrong, you know, and, this, in summer, it's a green desert. Well, in summer, it's, it, a maize field was a nutrient-rich toxic zone. And in winter, it was a true desert. There was nothing there. And it really started bothering me. And I, I kind of hoped that one day, if I ever could go farming, I could look at it from a different aspect. So after some years in practice, having learned what I could, I started leasing a farm and already wanted to do I, I had come to believe that grass was the way to go as the most cost effective and most sustainable way of farming livestock and so we kicked off and it was proving to be so you know with no money we were managing I was managing to survive um, I was considered completely nuts by most people because I also realized that tractor costs were enormous so I did all my work with cart horses and the draft horses were saving me an absolute fortune. And as I said to, uh, so there was a time when I built up to about 300 cows of milk and I had no tractors on the farm. And we were saving, this is a long time ago, but we were saving about 150,000 rand a year in direct machinery costs. And as I sort of said to people, I said, you know, I'm not making 150,000 rand profit. So if, if I was doing it conventionally with tractors, I would be going broke. But by using draft horses, it's actually allowing us to survive. And that was before you even get all the positive sides. But through the draft horses, through the pasture farming, through the absolute appreciation for wildlife that I was developing, I just came more and more convinced that there's a better way to farm than what, what we're seeing out there, what most people were doing out there. We, uh, I was very fortunate and um, at one point there were some Italian girls who were doing some studies on some otters and they captured otters and they brought them to me and I put in transponders so they could track them for three years. And these girls were doing it in the Camberg Nature, Nature Reserve, which is part of the Ukutlamba World Heritage Site, which is the most beautiful park. Again, anyone who can go there should go there. But they were always amazed because they'd come to the farm 
and there would be far more wildlife on the farm than there was in the nature reserve. And the reality was that it was because it was a nutrient-rich, non-toxic environment that we created. And even though it was a small farm, the effects were enormous, which brought me to another great lesson was that my neighbor planted a big patch, 30 hectares of cabbages right on my boundary. I didn't think too much about it, but after a few weeks after planting, I saw one of my staff carrying a whole lot of dead birds. And I was driving around, we just started finding dead birds everywhere. And again, it was the poisons that were used in the patch of cabbages killed literally thousands of birds on my property because birds don't respect boundaries. They go wherever there's food. But the reality was that if we hadn't created such a, a safe haven for birds, we wouldn't have even seen the impact. And this made me realize that, that things are not right out there. I was lucky in that I was fortunate in that I wanted to, I was loving the farming. All I wanted to do was farm. I realized that economies of scale come into play. And I was quite keen to sort of push the uh, the boundaries a little bit on on that side of things. So I looked for a, a bigger farm. And eventually we found my little piece of heaven, which was called Woodford Farm. And we grew that to a 3,000 hectares block of land. Originally bought 1,000 hectares, but bought on additional neighboring properties till there was 3,000 hectares. We only planted pastures for the vast majority of the time there. I was always very proud to say we used no herbicides or chemicals in the agriculture side of things. We grew our own, produced our own seed. And the explosion in indigenous fauna was absolutely incredible. It was this vast area of green pasture. You could actually, if you flew in the aeroplane from Durban to Cape Town, you could see against the mountains this massive green patch of land, which was which was Waterford Farm. I believe that in South South Africa, in that part of South Africa, the only truly way of sustainable farming was pasture farming. But to grow pastures all around there, you needed water because we had a high rainfall area, but no rain in winter. The most farmers who irrigated pumped out the rivers. And I saw many years before that that wasn't sustainable. It wasn't acceptable to pump the rivers dry. So we built dams. Um, and that's how I built dams. On my first little farm, I built 30 dams. On Waterford, I built over 120 dams. Some very small little ponds and some quite large bodies of water, um, up to a million cubic meters of water. So we were storing about four and a half million cubic meters of water by the time I was finished. Even the small ponds, I love them because each one was its own little ecosystem. It had its own frogs and ducks and and just its own little bit of beauty. So Waterford grew to this absolutely astounding place. We literally had these rolling hills of green grass. We had nearly 6,000 head of cattle altogether. We had 600 horses. We had little flocks of sheep and goats. We had pigs that were running, utilizing all the washings from the dairy, uh, probably the most profitable part of the farm. And it was just like a happy place. Um, I built up an amazing staff. And it was so many people came to the farm and said, gee, how come your staff is so happy? And I think it was because they were proud of what you were doing as well. And But alongside all this farm 
the productive farm animals we were working with, we had this absolute explosion again of, of wildlife. We went, when we got there, there were no cranes nesting on the farm. By the time we finished, we had wattle cranes, blue cranes, and crown cranes all nesting. And we had juvenile flocks of all three species. So there were times when I could sit in a field, look around me, and I'd see 150 crown cranes, 50 wattle cranes, and up to 20 blue cranes, all in the same vista. And I don't think there are many places in, in the world you, you could do that. Goosebumps. <laughs> we literally had thousands of various species of, of waterfowl and that came with the water and the pastures. We were very, ever since I started farming, I started feeding vultures. We had up to 400 Cape vultures, and at times we had 14 bearded vultures feeding at, at one time there. And all of this thing brought exciting things. You know, we were involved in a project of putting transmitters on bearded vultures uh, with some researchers who's followed them for years. And it was just my payment in life was this wildlife. We, we had a herd of, of eland that grew to 100 on the farm. We had the reedbuck where there was probably 10 or 20 when we got there increased to over 200. We had one of the last farms we bought had a bit of a game farm on it too. So we had we had a real variety of animals from blessbuck to zebras and ostriches and things. But it was actually the small things. It was the otters. It was at nighttime, if you looked up in the sky against the sun, you just see an, a myriad of insects. And that's what really made me feel like we were doing the right thing. And there was many a time I went to other farms, and I do the same. And if you look above a maize field in the evening as the sun's setting, there's nothing. There's no insects above there, hardly anything. And one of my, my bugbears over there was the forestry, which is very much a monoculture, plantation kind of scenario, which, again, are absolute green deserts. If you go into them, they're silent. There's no life. You can hear the wind blowing through the pine needles, but there's no life in there. And those things really bothered me. And I did believe that that at least we were doing the right thing. And maybe by example, we could change some thoughts about farming. And I, I believe we did. Not many people took it to the level we took it to. However, I did think it was the right approach. And yeah, so Waterford was just the most amazing experience. I mean, I went way out on a limb, borrowed large sums of money and bought on land, all believing we were doing the right thing. And that was the dream of Waterford. <laughs> Thank you for sharing. I mean, it's such a powerful, I think, both purpose, like I really get the sense of purpose in you, and also the mission, just to, you had this hunch, this thing you'd seen, and you figured out, innovated your way through. I mean, even when that innovation sounds like it doesn't make sense, you know, the, the pack horses you were using, it sort of, you know, people are listening are like, what? They use a tractor, but, but it wouldn't have made sense without the tractor. And it just fit with the ether. It's the lack of fear of doing things that you think are right and creating something that's better, I think, is one of the most inspiring things about you. And I have to say, for the record, anyone listening will know that this is by far the quietest I have ever been possibly in my whole life, but certainly... <laughs> on this podcast because there are almost no questions to ask. I mean, it's just the, the pureness of the stories and the, it's just captivating. I do have a question. 
though, and that is what has you worried about the future of the planets, you know, from an agriculture way? You know, it's, t- it's actually terrifying to hear the description of, you know, absolute, you know, you hear nothing but the wind in these forests and there's no insects. I mean, it, it sounds very, it's quite a scary thing to think about the cost of what we're doing. And I, you know, and I've, I, I was walking back, back home last summer in the fields around where my dad lives in a village called Lookers. And it was not long after we first met and, and uh, recorded. And I remember looking at the soil and looking over the crops and thinking, he's right. I don't, I don't see any wildlife in this space whatsoever. So why are you, why are you worried? And what do we need to do? And then perhaps tell us what you are doing now, because you're doing something new again, in, and this time in Scotland, a bit of a change of scenery, which is probably a, a conversation for another another episode, or certainly over a beer sometime. But let's take each one of those questions in time. What is you worried? What do we need to do differently? And then tell us what you're working on now. So I think the two major worries were this monoculture cropping with the use of pesticides on the one hand, and then on the other side, on the animal side, the mega factory farming of uh, intensification, factory farming of animals also bothered me. Mm. I just cannot get my head around that it's okay to farm pigs like we do, the massive dairies, the the massive beef feedlots. There is just so little good about it and so much wrong about it that all of that was bothering me greatly. And life took its turns and I ended up up here in Scotland thinking that I would uh, be coming to a beautiful remote place where wildlife would be well cared for and sought after. And I have to say, I was horrified. The I thought soil erosion was something that happened in Africa. The soil erosion I've seen here is, I think, worse. I think in South African farmers have a, a great desire to prevent soil erosion. With here, I see vegetable fields plowed up and down the hills. Every time there's a, there's a rainstorm of 20 or 30 millimetres, half the field lands up in the roads. The rivers run brown, browner than the rivers I saw in Africa. And it really, really bothered me. And for the first time in many years, I had a bit of time to read a bit as well. Um, and obviously being interested in these things, I have read a number of books about the use of things like Roundup, glyphosate, and various others, endocrine disruptive syndrome, and various issues that we possibly are facing. And what I think possibly facing, we're very much facing. One of the things that bothered me, I fully understood the desire for people to become vegetarians or vegans. And you know, quite a few of my friends would laugh, say, you're going to be the first beef farmer who's, who's a vegetarian that I know. But because I don't like the way that we're farming beef mod- in the modern terms. So going to Scotland now, this beautiful country, and it is an absolutely beautiful country. But I see all the soil washing down the rivers. You know, and I see these monocultures, I see no life. And then I see the animals in the sheds. You know, I worked here for a year as a veterinarian, and I was mortified by the conditions that the animals live in. I sadly can honestly say I saw more animal cruelty here than I saw in Africa. And I thought I'd be coming to a place where, where the animals would be beautifully looked after. And it's bothered me. So I was becoming somewhat disillusioned by 
agriculture here in in the UK and and in Scotland. And one of the vets I worked with happens to be own a, a farm and they have embarked on a organic conversion and they have a grasp of what is a term that we all need to become aware of is regenerative agriculture. And essentially it is taking what I was doing before on my beautiful Woodford to a slightly higher level and probably understanding it a bit more. I didn't really understand what I was doing. I was just doing what I thought was right without really understanding the biology behind it. And there's an enormous amount of work going on now. It is becoming very evident that we have to look after the soil. Um, we have to look after biodiversity. We have to look after water. And there is a move afoot. There are many, many people out there who are realizing that it's not a case of this is something for the nutcases to do. This is something that we actually have to do. I think farming globally is getting away with enormous environmental damage that they should be held accountable for. The crazy part about it, though, is that just like my Waterford farm, which showed very clearly that farming in a sustainable way actually was more profitable, when you go into the nuts and bolts of all of this, the moment we start regenerative farming, it's more profitable as well. So you kind of, it's just a hard, hard to understand why it's not happening on a bigger scale. And I mean, the real, one of the real reasons is been political intervention, subsidies, power and influence of the drug, drug companies, the chemical companies, the seed companies, which are all interwoven. And they have had enormous impact. So the guys who are paddling the boats of regenerative agriculture at this stage are generally paddling their own little canoe in a pretty upstream and a pretty big river that is being pushed by, by the big companies. Even at agricultural colleges and universities, one is taught the conventional way of doing things, using big tractors, conventional cultivation, conventional poisons, herbicides, and all the rest. Um, so I'm just hoping that we can we can create a example that can expand to neighbours and others, which will, at the end of the day, result in bringing back wildlife which is from the insects to the fish to the birds to everything back to agriculture here where i am and hopefully everywhere in the world yeah we like to blame cats for the collapse in sparrow populations but if there's no insects the birds are going to have a hard time aren't they i'm curious then so tell us a little bit more about the farm that you're now working on give us a little more detail on what it is that you're doing that's different and you know being as how i grew up in amongst those rolling five hills i'm really keen to hear how you see it changing okay so we've got about three and a half thousand acres altogether on four different farms for hundreds of years the farms have been run with conventional agriculture the fields have been plowed and plowed and plowed and fertilized and sprayed with chemicals and everything is dead except for a, a beautiful green monoculture crops that eke out a ever-increasing productive life, I think. So the owner of the farm has a very genuine and deep desire to 
to change things for the better. My role on the farm is to look after the livestock. We have another guy who's in charge of the cropping and the agronomy side of things. So, for example, instead of planting a straight pasture, we're going to be planting 19 species herbal layers, which have got legumes, have got various grasses, various legumes, deep-rooted plants like chicory and all sorts of herbs as well, rather than a monoculture grass. We're going to keep all the animals outside all year round. We've done a number of, in the short time I've been here through this winter, uh, the animals outside are vastly better off than the animals that are in sheds. Um, we do have some in sheds, but hopefully this is the last year they'll ever be in sheds. We are implementing... When you say better off, you mean fewer cases of like pneumonia, foot disease, skin disease, all sorts of stuff. All sorts of stuff, but more than anything, their, their well-being. A very interesting aspect, just a very such a small component of cattle in sheds is dung beetles. So dung beetles can't survive in the dung with cattle in sheds. So for a dung beetle, while the cows are out on pasture, there's a life for them. But come winter and all the cows go into sheds, there's, there's no, the dung beetles hit a brick wall. And it's such a small example, but there's just a million little examples like that. Welfare of the cows really bothered me, though, seeing these cows in these sheds and the way they're handled and the way they're stressed, the pneumonias and diseases that are... Most of the diseases we dealt with were simply a result of the way the animals are kept. You can see how, just even thinking of the dung beetle, what that does in terms of bringing nutrients into the soil, providing food for some other animal a different part of the food chain, I presume aeration of the soil, all, all sorts of stuff, just that one insect and the number of insects you're going to impact with this. How long do you expect soil recovery to take in a situation like this? Well, the wonderful thing is that we, I saw on Waterford, um, we were able to rehabilitate soils from almost no organic matter to levels of five and a half to six percent organic matter, which is higher for soils in a matter of four to five years. And there is more than enough evidence around the world now of people who have embarked on a regenerative type agricultural approach that the response is actually remarkably quick. Is within four or five years you can have a significant difference. So I think the one doesn't have to wait too long. The response is the response is just around the corner as long as we go about it the right way. One of the questions I wanted to ask was, if this is also good, why aren't more of us doing it? I think perhaps you answered that with just the way that the, the, the deck is stacked against smaller scale organic farming. Presumably there's some price pressure in the market because I would imagine doing it one way is actually more profitable because you charge more for the produce that is going out the door as well and perhaps don't have to go through the the more traditional route through supermarkets where a lot of the margin gets chopped up. Is that accurate or am I missing out here? Are there reasons why this couldn't be scalable? So on the surface of things, it's something that has bothered me a lot to try and understand as well, because coming from a country like Africa, where there's enormous poor population, they can't afford to pay a premium price for food. They're not interested in paying a premium price for food. They just want food as cheap as possible. And 
the sad reality is that in the ordinary conventional way of farming, that factory farming, this massive monoculture farming, does produce food cheaper than many other ways of farming. However, it's only, I believe, doing that because it's supported by government and politics. I think that when one gets to the nitty-gritty of it, just like we did on Waterford, um, and here, your actual production cost after your conversion phase is actually less. The only thing is you can't do is produce the massive volumes of certain products that you can with monoculture. But when we're realizing that 60 to 70% of all grain is fed to animals anyway, we don't need to produce those volumes of grain. It really is not necessary. And the strange enigma that I'm dealing with in my own quandary of things is realizing that I can't go to the supermarket and buy fruit and veg that isn't inundated with chemicals, that isn't coming from a completely unsustainable agricultural base. So we're very fortunate in our situation because all our own products go through our own shop here. And that allows the farm to have a margin that makes it actually very profitable. It doesn't mean to say it's not profitable. And there are plenty of examples around the world of guys who have converted from conventional farming to a fully regenerative approach. And they are making better profits than they used to make. It gives you an opportunity, though, to get a premium price for your product because you are supplying something that's better and special. Better, yeah. So there's an opportunity cost there. So on a business basis, it absolutely can be a wise thing to do. And there is no reason. I think one of the possible stumbling blocks has been that it's quite hard for people to perceive that you could do this type of farming on a large scale. I don't think there's a problem at all. So Pete, the question I have to ask, being a vegan, is so are you going to go veggie or not like i mean you're the, the vegetarian beef farmer that would be a hoot uh, i have this massive dilemma and quandary in my life is that for me we raise these animals and then we kill them and there is nothing worse than the abbot for they are awful places and what we do with animals is questionable and that's before we even get to factory farming however I know that I can't go to the supermarket and get a vegetable diet that is grown in a sustainable manner, that is safe, that's not inundated with chemicals and poisons, that is comes from an environment that, that supports the biodiversity of life. So do I eat meat and animal products? when they are grown in an organic environment that is supporting massive biodiversity and a more sustainable agriculture, or do I become a vegetarian and eat poison? Well, that's a hell of a point. And I tell you what, it's enough to make me want to go immediately to my local health food store and get a whole bunch of nice organically grown vegetables, put them in a pot and make a lovely bowl of soup and, and ponder it more. I was living in Australia and I saw what was happening with the live animal export trades. You know, the, the way animals were treated, they were shipped onto boats in incredibly hot temperatures, sailed across oceans for a long period of time, you know, just not 
you know the combining the worst of all worlds you know the the roughness of the seas plus the just the conditions you know the fecal soiling all of that it's just you know it's terrible shape and then going to countries where there weren't particularly good human rights let alone animal rights and the way that they were slaughtered was just un- it was intolerable to me I, I couldn't with any conscience support the meat industry when it, it just cared about nothing but the dollar and so I, I gave it up then and then very gradually migrated across to being vegan and I have to say it was one of the the best values-led decisions I made as a vet. It seems very odd to me, and I'm sure I'll get hate mail for this, but I don't understand how we can tear down puppy farmers on one hand and then look at cattle farmers in the intensive situation I'm referring to here. I, I have a lot of respect for people rearing animals in good conditions. There seems to be a, a giant conflict between those two positions that we're able to ignore one but lambast the other, it just doesn't seem, doesn't sit with me. But but there we go. That's just my opinion. And um, everybody is entitled to theirs. But what a big question, Peter. <laughs> what a big question. But I think we as vets have got a significant role to play in this. And the, strangely enough, on the animal side, I think we as vets have played quite a significant role in exacerbating the welfare of the poor welfare of animals in insisting on the way we do abattoirs and things like that. There is just no moral grounds for the live export of animals. For me, there's no moral grounds of exporting live animals from the UK to Europe. There's no moral ground in my mind for us exporting live animals from Scotland to Devon cruel. And we as vets need to perhaps think about our role in changing the way we do the veterinary meat inspection side of things to improve the, or not the meat inspection, is the, we as vets need to play a role in just seeing the welfare of the animal through the whole process. It's better looked after. Yeah, let's have a proper Hippocratic oath, not perhaps a slightly hypocritic one. <laughs> Peter, I wonder if you've actually found that experience on Cloud9, it's analogous to what you're doing now, in a sense, in that the storm on the horizon here is actually world global farming that needs an answer. You know, it's it's also wrecking the environment unsustainably. And that you've stepped onto perhaps with a little bit more experience and sea legs and a bit more awareness of how to surf that boat and ride that storm now with your experience from Waterford and now where you are, you know, the opportunity to be a bit of a a pioneer and to help to change things and, and return not just a better quality product for your market, but actually a better life for the animals, whether they're the livestock you care for, the insects that fly above it or the birds that feed on them. There's really something more profound it's not just a romanticism there's something quite profoundly connecting about your story to the natural world in which as humans we're all completely connected anyway so Peter, i could actually speak for hours about this with you and you know it's kind of getting later on in our evenings here i'm sure there's a million questions and, and what i hope actually listening to this episode does for people is that it opens up a million questions in their own minds perhaps it's to think about the things that we fear about in some ways that, that perhaps we shouldn't and they're in the grand scheme of things not so scary after all. 
Or perhaps it's to roll with the punches and go with the flow a little bit. Or perhaps it's to innovate and to push the boundaries. And maybe it's just to recognize the moments of beauty when they come along and enjoy them because they do show up in the, the most unexpected of places. But whatever it is, I hope everyone has enjoyed the conversation as much as I've had. Peter, thank you for your time this evening. I enjoyed our first conversation. I've enjoyed this one, and I, I hope we get to have many more. And uh, will you give me a tour of your farm when I'm next back up in St Andrews? Love to. And um, if anybody anybody's welcome, is one of the things we would love to do on the farm here is to, to show people what we're doing and be proud of what we're doing, but more to show people that there is an alternative way and hopefully a better way. So anybody's welcome anytime here, but especially you, Dave. Love to show you around. What's the web address, Peter? There isn't one at the moment. It's one of the next things I will be creating would be a website for the farm. All right. Well, you let me know if you want any hand in getting any of that going because it sounds like a great project. And I uh, absolutely love to be there. Um, so the name of the farm, and when you do get your website live, we will link it up from the show notes. And I'm hoping that you're going to have a, an Instagram account full of those photos of those re-energized, re-sort of invigorated, beautiful rolling Fife Hills and some of those amazing sunsets we get. And uh, of course, an array of beautiful beasties as well. And um, what's the name of the farm? Oh yeah, there's four of them, aren't there? Well, the name of the farming setup is Strathtyrum and Fossaway Farm. Strathtyrum and Fossaway Farm. Farms, yeah. And we, the home farm is right next to St. Andrew's Town. Okay. So there's the third place that you really thing you must really do. Get on a boat and enjoy the ocean. Go visit the game reserve in South Africa and go see St. Andrews. Beautiful. Peter, thank you so much for your time. It's um, been great talking to you. Thank you for making some time for us this afternoon. And uh, I look forward to seeing you again soon, sir. Super day. I am beating my desk here. Wow. 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 Wasn't that something? Thank you so much to Peter. Absolutely amazing guest. Uh, thank you for his courage in reliving those experiences for us. Just so much to take away and to ponder over there. I hope you guys enjoyed the show. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to tell people about the show. Leave a review on iTunes. Share the show on your favorite socials. I'd be really grateful. And please, if you're in a veterinary practice management position, do check out the VEDEX Leaders community on vedexinternational.com. Until next time from us all here, be safe, be well, and be happy. Dr. Dave, out. <laughs>